Well, thanks, Scott. If you guys are new to TBC, uh, Scott Susong is our shepherding pastor. He's a volunteer pastor here on staff and just does an awesome, awesome job. And just appreciate him and Judy and their ministry here at TBC. Um, so thank you for, for praying for us this morning. And I want to mention a couple things, like Scott said and uh, Sam mentioned, we're, we're not having children's church or nurseries this morning. However, if you have kids and they make noises during the service, like, I get it. I make noises during the service as well. And I'll just out-talk you. Uh, I'll be louder than you are. I've got a microphone. And so as long as you're not bothering anybody around you, um, I'm okay with it. And TBC is a family-oriented church. And so we want to make every opportunity for you to be in the service, uh, to listen to God's word being taught. And uh, just thank you so much for making some time and for being here. There are, if you do need anything, um, as far as kids are concerned, there are two rooms in the back here. You're free to use uh, some of our prayer rooms. Just look for Tom Whitty's walking around uh, with a, a suit coat on, or you can even come out into the foyer and, and Harold will probably help you if you need some directions and you just need to get out of the service for, for a second. So wanted to mention that. Also, since we do have a smaller group this morning, and hopefully I'll try not to move around too much for you guys on watching on the live feed. I wanted to mention just in front here, uh, the Shore Rocks, Steve and Colleen. This little device that I wear on my shirt every week is a hearing uh, device for the Shore Rocks. Colleen's ministry, one of her ministries that she loves to be a part of, is ministering to the hearing impaired. And so Jerry is uh, the lady up here that often gets ministered to through hearing assistance, through their ministry at TBC. If you get a chance to stop by and talk to uh, Colleen and Steve about this ministry, it really is an incredible, incredible thing that they're doing and using their gifts to serve in the body of Christ. And I just wanted to mention that this morning to just encourage you guys. Thank you so much for, for your ministry and making this available to so many people. And speaking of some body life news, I do have a, a couple of really exciting announcements to make this morning. Um, we've had, we have two new babies. Um, some of us at TBC take our cultural mandate seriously to be fruitful and multiply. Others of you have given up on your mandate, and so I understand those things, it's okay, but you don't get the award this week for, for increasing our numbers at TBC, and instead, we have a couple parents who do get the award. Uh, Ryan and Natalie Brown recently welcomed Charlotte McKenna into the world. I think she was born on November 2nd. Here's a little picture of Charlotte. They're praying right now, and if you wouldn't mind uh, praying with them, that Charlotte will get her, her birth weight back up. She'll begin to take in the nutrients that she needs as an infant. They're not in the service today. But congratulations to Ryan and Natalie Brown. Um, if you would like to reach out to them also, uh, Rich and Diane, Grandma and Grandpa, are a part of our, our church. Rich is one of our deacons on staff or in our ministry here at TBC. Um, you can communicate through them, with them. I know they would love just to, just to hear from you, a card, anything like that. We also have a, a new family, the bird cells that have been coming. Um, Cortland and Aaron are brand new to TBC. They recently had a, uh, a baby girl, Kaylin Fay, uh, six pounds, 11 ounces. If, in case you're keeping track of any of this, sorry, bird cells, you guys are a little bit short of what the Browns were able to accomplish, about one pound heavier and maybe a couple inches longer. If you can step up your game, that'd be great next time. 
Um, congratulations to both of these families, and if you do to get a chance, just, just reach out to them, and um, our, our church family does an incredible, incredible job ministering to younger families. Uh, I know the Wednesday Sunrise Sisters provided a huge package of diapers and necessities for the bird cells. Also the Browns, we've been doing meals and all kinds of things for them. They're, they're a little bit more seasoned here at, uh, at TBC, but wanted to mention those two families. And again, just if you get a chance, you might, might say, uh, drop them a text, drop them a message, and say congratulations, all right? This, uh, this passage of scripture that Scott read for us is probably one of the most depressing passages in all of Ecclesiastes. This is like, okay, what do you want me to do here? I, I can work, I can't work, I can do it for these th- reasons, I can't do it for that reason. Um, I love what work in our culture is on difficult times. I think all of us, because of the world in which we live and the me- modern mentality for gratification through our work and, and even self-fulfillment taken to an extreme struggle with work, with finding fulfillment and enjoyment in our jobs. And I just want to mention a couple of old songs, new songs that kind of get to the heart of a modern mentality concerning our careers and the way that we approach work. And so the first I'm going to start with is the bangles. Anybody? Following with me? Six o'clock already, I was just sitting in the middle of a dream. Kissing Valentino by a crystal blue Italian stream. But I can't be late, because then I guess it just won't get, get paid. These are the days when you wish your bed was already made. It's just another manic Monday. Whoa, whoa. You guys know what I'm talking about. I wish it was Sunday, because that's my fun day. I don't have to run day. It's just another manic Monday. One of the perspectives on work that the Bengals are giving us here is that it reveals a wild and deranged chaotic life. Working a a nine to five job, a career on a day in, day out, week in, week out basis is manic, it is crazy. But Sundays are the fun days. And so we live for the weekend, we live for the fun days. Uh, One of my favorites, personal favorites, Dolly Parton. Working nine to five. What a way to make a living. Barely getting by. It's all taken and no given. They just use your mind. They never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Right? So for Dolly Parton, her perspective on work is that the man is always out to get you. All you're doing when you work your nine to five job is lining the pockets and making the wallets of the rich men fatter, bigger, and giving them more resources. Um, The purpose of work is solely to make the rich rich, and the people who aren't rich have no purpose. You just punch your clock nine to five, nine to five, nine to five. 1964, bring it home with the little Beatles here. It's been a hard day's night. I've been working like a dog, It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. When I get home to you, I find the things that you do make me feel all right. So for the Beatles, hard work is actually okay. It's good, especially if you have somebody to go home to. This this next song is is perhaps (laughs) one of the most depressing 
of all the songs. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. We dig, dig, dig from early morning until night. We dig, dig, dig everything up in sight. We dig up diamonds by the score, a thousand rupees, sometimes more, but we don't know what we dig them for. For the seven dwarfs, the revelation of work is that there's no purpose in it. We keep doing these things, we just, we don't know why. And it seems to happen over and over and over again. Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 16, like several other sections in Ecclesiastes is about our our jobs, our work and our careers. Day in and day out, week in and week out from nine to five, work can seem meaningless. It can seem so futile. Just like you're pushing that boulder up the rock only to see it fall back to the ground every single time. And and what we need to do is is we need to look through scripture and hopefully develop a, a theology of work and understand why most of us struggle with the monotony and the seemingly meaninglessness of our jobs and our careers. And it takes us back to Genesis chapter three. And I haven't included all of the verses on here. This is a a shortened form of of verses 17 through 19, but I wanna read this. It says, cursed is the ground because of you after man fell into sin. This is God pronouncing his judgment on Adam specifically. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. One of the results and the effects of sin in a fallen world is that it impacts not only our personal and private lives, but also our public and our social lives. Sin affects absolutely every part of who we are and the things that we touch in a fallen world, including, and in particular, sin affects our work, our jobs. In a fallen world marked by pain, lack of fulfillment, fruitlessness in work. We have to understand that the opinions and the feelings that we we listen to on songs and we read about in stories and in the paper are because we live in a fallen world. And we do our job in it with pain and toil and suffering. In Ecclesiastes chapter four, the, the preacher is on a quest for meaning. And that quest lands him in his career. After all, he will spend the majority of his life working. Working, doing his job. He tells us that our attitudes toward work reveal two things about us. And here's your your outline for Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 16. Our attitudes about our work reveal our strongest idols, verses 4 through 8. Our greatest fears at the end of this chapter, verses 13 through 16. And then finally, our work can actually have a great reward. So right in the middle of our strongest idols and our greatest fears, there's a little uh, reprieve of hope in there. And we're gonna see a little bright spot in verses 13 through 16. Number one in your outline, number one this morning. Our attitude about our jobs reveals our strongest idols. The strongest idols that we have in our hearts. One of the reasons we know that this section is all about work is because of the repeated use of the word toil throughout this this section. Look down at Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil 
and all skill in work. Skip down to verse six. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. Skip down to verse eight. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil. Verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Five uses of the word toil in 13 verses in this section in Ecclesiastes. Almost every paragraph in your translation references toil. And almost every paragraph also has this repeated refrain, this too is vanity and striving after the wind. I want you to pay special attention to three sins, three issues that almost all of us will encounter and all of us will face because of the fallen world of work in which we live. Verse four, the first one that he mentions is envy. Envy. Then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. The second sin that we're gonna struggle with in work is laziness, verse five. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And then finally, the third one is greed. Never have enough, always pursuing work, always pursuing more things for your self-gratification and fulfillment. Some people pursue their careers literally to keep up with the Joneses. All right, no offense, Marlene and Travis, you guys, even though I'm trying to keep up with you. Envy is a, is a grave and dangerous sin in the Bible. Envy in Latin literally means to look against another. It's always with the perspective toward another person in a negative connotation. It is an evil that is strongly condemned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it is slightly distinguished from jealousy, which we often hear about in the Bible as well. When we are jealous, we are jealous for our own things. When we are envious, we are envious for another person's things. Jealousy is fear of losing what we personally have. Envy fears what another person has. The root word for, for envy in Hebrew, it's, uh, it's related to the word to, to be red. Um, it literally has a picture, this idea of somebody becoming angry and red in the face because of what somebody else has and they don't have. Paul lists envy in his shocking lists of sins in both Romans chapter one and Galatians chapter five, verse 21. And remember that envy was one of the base reasons for the crucifixion of Christ by the religious leaders. Jesus had something that they wanted instead. He had the love of the people, shepherding with a gentle and truthful um, mind and heart. Envy's power is depicted in Proverbs 27, verse four. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before envy? Listen to Proverbs 14, verse 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones, Solomon writes. The preacher says, working from envy is vanity and striving after the wind. If you are consumed by what another person has and you are pursuing a career because of that, it will literally rot your bones, according to scripture. And that's why it is so depressing when Solomon looks and develops this theology of work. This idol is anchored in materialism, individualism, and self-gratification, 
all rooted in the heart that wants more and more and more. And what's worse than that, it's not just that we want more, it's that we want more than the next person. Envy is always comparing itself to someone or to something. It is never content with what it has. On the other side of, of the spectrum, from envy, of course, would be working, working hard because you're envious of another thing, another person, or, or their possessions, at least. On the other side is, is not working at all. It's being completely lazy and not being concerned whatsoever about your work and what God has called you to do. Listen to Proverbs 6, verse 10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. Verse five in, in Ecclesiastes chapter four, the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. The proper motivation for work, a biblical theology of work, is neither envy nor laziness and giving up completely on that. There's a healthy area somewhere in between those two deadly sins. Verse eight lists a, a third sinful motivation that we often struggle with in our work and our careers, and that is greed. Look down at verse eight. One person who has no other except son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his working, his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling in depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Uh, verse eight includes a distinct and somewhat unique first person reference here. Uh, you kind of see this little quotation right inside there. He never asks, for whom am I toiling in depriving myself of pleasure? Maybe this is in fact the preacher who is struggling with this idea, this greed this want for more, just working and working so that he can gain more and spend it, again, on his own pleasures and on his own wants. At the end, all of it is, is vanity. This is our, our Hebrew word, hevel, that keeps coming up in Ecclesiastes. Everything is fleeting, it is temporary, it will not ultimately satisfy, and it will not ultimately fulfill. It was the great reformer, John Calvin, who gave us a, a deeper theology of work. He said our work is a way to create and bring out the wonders of the created order. Uh, Calvin looked back at Genesis 1 when he began his theology of work and he saw the God of the universe, the creator of all things, as one who gave himself to a good work. He took chaos and he took disintegration and, and darkness that covered the face of the earth and he ordered it. He separated the elements of his creation, and he went to work on his business of creation. Luther, another one of our reformers, gives us a good theology of work. He says, our work can be an instrument of God's providence and actually serve the basic needs of other people. And it can be other-focused rather than self-focused. Both reformers saw work as something that, that points outside of the self to other people and ultimately to God and to glorifying him with everything that we say and do. The reformers couldn't fathom the thought that a Christian would work solely for his own self-interests. 
and solely for what he or she could get out of it. It always has an other focus. It's always directed upward, and our, our motivation for work is directed outward to other people and, and to meeting needs. Today, of, of course, that mentality from the reformers is completely flipped. We have done a 180 in our culture. It is, it is upside down from what scripture would teach us. Work is primarily a way for us to distinguish ourselves from our neighbors, to have more than the next person. We use work to show others and to prove to ourselves that we really are someone, that we're important, that we're significant. And when that happens, our jobs become the basis for our meaning in life altogether. And they actually become the marker for our, our, our identity, who we are. We introduce somebody, hey, my name is Brian Shoup, I'm a, I'm a doctor. You're just, you're just Brian Shoup, you know? Why, why is that always the first thing that we go to? When work becomes the basis for your meaning in life and for your personal identity, when something happens in your career, or God forbid you might actually lose your job, everything else tumbles, and you are a miserable person because all of your identity is caught up in that. We had a friend that uh, just came to visit us from uh, L.A., he lived in L.A. as a big contractor, worked on massive, massive hospitals, and he was in charge for all of the exterior surfaces. He said in L.A., one of the biggest projects he did was they built um, big, big hospital facilities and clinics, and they had a concrete pour one night where there was exactly 350 concrete trucks that were gonna come and pour concrete, one after the other, until the parking lot was paved and everything was taken care of. Made boo-koodles of money. Uh, got to the end of a couple projects, worked that job for about five years, and they said, we don't need you anymore. And his life completely fell apart. He came over to us, their, their family was taking a vacation before he actually found another job and, and moved to Denver, Colorado. And we were talking a little bit about it and he was just kind of depressed because his new job wasn't as big and great as his old job in LA. And Brandy and I sat down and talked to him and said, look, what do you have to prove? What, do you, what are you so concerned about? Does your, do you have a good relationship with your wife? Do you, do you guys have those things in place that if your identity is, is caught up in a job, you won't be a miserable person if things happen? The light went off to him. It took so much encouragement and comfort just from that, that one conversation. Your identity has to be in something that surpasses all of that, in some one that surpasses all of that. For ancient civilizations, um, a happy life was one that was lived well with character, integrity, family relationships, honor, and avoiding shame at every cost. Today, a happy life is one that is going well when you've got a good paying job with your work. Remember, idols are not just everywhere. Idols can be anything. Work is a good thing. It is a biblical thing to pursue your careers with excellence and do your jobs ultimately to the glory of God. But if your job is not loved less than your family, you're gonna end up losing both. 
If your job is not loved less than your paycheck, you're gonna end up losing both. And so Augustine would remind us to keep our loves in order. And ultimately, all of these things, our jobs, our careers, must be loved less than the person of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't take away jobs because of some malicious intent and we don't have our loves in order. He will build our jobs and he will build our careers for his glory when they are loved in their proper order. With God first, and family, and then our careers. Our attitudes toward our work, number one, they reveal our strongest idols. Our attitudes towards our work also reveal our greatest fear. So I want you to skip down to uh, verse 13 through 16. I'm gonna read this. And there's a, Solomon, or we're presuming the preacher here, Kohelet, he's gonna give us an illustration about kings, and, and this gets a little convoluted, so, so just bear with me. I'm gonna read all of verse 13 through 16 again, just like uh, Scott did. Verse 13, better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. This is, we presume it's the poor, wise youth. He went from prison to the throne, though his own kingdom had been born, he had been born poor. Verse 15, and I think there's a sharp distinction between verse 14 and 15 here. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all of the people, all whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Verses, verses 13 and 14, just take the beginning part of this section, compare two kings by way of contrast. There is a, a poor and a wise youth, and, and there is an old and a foolish king. Right, a poor and a wise youth and an old and foolish king. And the first contrast, their social status. The youth is poor, the older man is obviously a king. He's at the upper echelon of, of the social ladder. Second, it contrasts their age. One is very young, one is very old, the king being older. Thirdly, and most importantly, it contrasts their knowledge. The youth was wise, but the king, the older king, was a fool. What's startling is that in the ancient Near East, in a text like this, in wisdom literature, we would expect the exact opposite. Normally, it would be the old, the wiser one, the king, who was, in fact, the one who had knowledge and wisdom. And it would be the youth who needed to grow in that wisdom and, and receive that counsel from him. But here it's reversed. This, uh, this story tells us that, that both of these things, both of these characters, at least, are overcome by wisdom, and by living according to God's wisdom, especially as it's revealed in Scripture. Let me just give you a principle just right here from verses 13 and 14. When it comes to seeking counsel, this is where the, the older king fails. Isolation will lead to desolation. When it comes to your jobs and seeking wisdom in your careers, isolation will lead to desolation. Proverbs is so clear that there is wisdom, godly wisdom in seeking out counsel, biblical counsel. Proverbs 15, verse 22. Plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they will succeed. 
Proverbs 11, verse 14. Where there is no counsel, people fall. Ignoring the advice of godly counsel is the stature and the mindset of a fool, according to Scripture. And so if we're going to be wise in our careers, in our jobs, in through life, we are going to be people who seek wise counsel from godly men and women who have walked the path of life before us, longer than us, and can give us this wisdom. I'll never forget one of my jobs that I had very early on. Uh, there was a supervisor that I worked for, and he was just known for having closed off his mind to any counsel from anybody whatsoever. And the, all of the people that worked for this guy, I found myself in a, in a long line of people. That it was almost like the, um, the, the staff door was a revolving door. People just came and went. Uh, the people that, that stayed and worked for him long, they just kind of figured out how to put up with it over time, realizing that, that this guy was kind of just a, a very stubborn person set in his ways. And so finally, something happened in that context where um, the supervisors over this boss said to him, listen, we're seeing a pattern, a, a series of things happening, and, and we need you to slow down and to listen to wise counsel. And so they brought in one of his best childhood friends, his, one of his lifelong friends that he had known for a long, long time. And sure enough, he came in and, and listened to the situation and gave that man, that superior, advice, gave him counsel. But it wasn't what he wanted to hear. And so even that lifelong friend he turned a blind uh, and deaf ear to what, they, what he had to say, cast him out of his life, and went forward just doing what he wanted to do instead. Um, every aspect of not seeking counsel is based on fear. Um, some mentality that you're going to be found out for not being a strong leader or strong in your, your wisdom and and abilities and skill. Because if the real problem was, was really there and it was dealt with, that person would have to admit that there's some weaknesses, there's some blind spots in his own life or her own life that needed to be dealt with. Listen to, listen to Proverbs 27, verse 6, because this is, this is just such a key aspect that we have to uh, embrace as followers of Christ and in discipleship relationships with other people. Gary um, Braswell did a, a sermon on this in Lighthouse Flock not too long ago, just excellent. I wish we would have recorded that, man. It says, Proverbs 27, verse six, the kisses of an enemy are excessive, but the wounds of a friend are faithful. Okay, so let, let's just stop. Who do you have in your life that you have given the permission to wound you? Who is that person who can tell you the truth even though you know it's going to hurt? And when is the last time you've gone to that person and said, please, please, I need your accountability in my life? When you see something, when you see a weakness, when you see a sin that I can't see for myself, I want you to tell me about it in truth and in love. Please be a good friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes that counsel hurts. Sometimes it goes right to our hearts and right to our pride. And some of us will only spend the rest of our lives surrounded by people who will sing our praises instead of telling us the difficult things. 
because we are unwilling to be wounded by a friend. You guys have probably heard this before. Um, the truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. We, need, we have to be friends who speak the truth in love. If it's just one or the other, that is not a healthy gospel discipleship relationship according to scripture, but to speak the truth in love and to say the difficult thing when you need to say it. The older king's downfall is, is the neglect of wise counsel. And you see a lot of pride behind the uh, words of scripture here. I think verse 15 introduces us to another youth in the story. I think there's a hard break between verses 14 and 15. This is a very difficult passage to interpret. But if I was gonna um, just kind of try to explain this the best I, I can see fit, I think now a third youthful king enters the equation in verse 15. So look down there. It says, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth. Actually, the, the Hebrew there is a second or another youth. So I think this youthful king is different from the youthful king in verse, 14, verse 13 from above, and this is just a completely a different story that is somewhat related in the context. So a second king comes along, he's a youthful king, and he stands in the king's place. And verse 16 tells us about this king. It says, there was no end to all of the people, all of whom he led. This king was extremely popular. He was well-liked probably very charismatic with the people. This king was the people's choice, all of his followers. He was popular, and this king's greatest fear was probably um, displeasing the people who were around him. He, was, he might have been a people-pleasing leader, a people-pleasing king in this context. So he worked and conducted his job with the ultimate goal of making everybody around him happy in pleasing them. Ed Welch has a book, uh, The Ladies' Wednesday Morning Group is gonna go through this. It's called uh, When People Are Big and God is Small. Next semester in the spring, they'll be starting this book. It's written by Ed Welch, and it is, it is an excellent resource. I wanna recommend it to you. But here's what he says. It's a lengthy quote, so I've put it on the screen for you. He says, when we think of idols, we usually think first of Baal and other material man-made creations. Next, we might think of money. We rarely picture our spouse, our children, or a friend as an idol. But people are our idol of choice. They predate Baal, money, and power. And like all idols, people are created things. They are not the creator. They are worshiped because we perceive that they have the power to give us something. I think all of us, if we're realistic and look into our own hearts, we would admit that we have slipped into a people-pleasing mentality rather than a God-pleasing mentality. And I think the things that ultimately please God really will please people when it's all said and done. And so maybe there's not a strict dichotomy between those two things. But if we live our jobs and our careers in an effort to live to please people before pleasing God, our work will be meaningless and it will be a vanity of vanities. Number one, our attitude in, in work reveals our strongest idols. Number two, it reveals our greatest fears. And number three, now we've got a little reprieve. Our work 
in a godly perspective, can actually have a great reward. The Bible has a lot to say about a healthy biblical perspective, a theology, we might say, of work. Verse 9 puts all of this paragraph, uh, verse 9 through 12, under the rubric, under the framework of what we've been discussing being our labor, our work. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their work, for their toil. I know you've probably read a lot of these verses or heard these verses in the context of a marriage ceremony, maybe even perhaps an illustration of the Trinity. All right, so let's just keep on reading this. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. This is uh, the theme verse for all my bachelors back there in the sound booth. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? One day, you guys, the Lord is gonna provide somebody to keep you warm, all right? And I'm praying, please pray for uh, those guys in the back. It'd be, be great. We need, we need some godly wives around here, all right? It'd be a good thing. If they fall, uh, verse 11, sorry, getting off track. If two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly snapped, is the Hebrew, or your translation probably says broken. What is the specific reward of having a companion to work with? Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. So what is that reward? The text doesn't specifically say what that reward is. Instead, we just assume verses 10 through 12 are talking about what that reward is. Is it a financial, is it an economic reward? We really don't know, but everything points us further on in the context to these nearby verses. And here's the principle. When we work with other people, and when we see other people as valuable to our own work and have a good perspective of community and teamwork with others, working with others will ensure that failure is not fatal. Working with others in a healthy context of biblical concepts will ensure that failure is not fatal and difficulties in life are not disastrous. The preacher says, woe to him who is alone when they fall or when difficulties come in life. This is very prophetic in its tone. It sounds like all of a sudden we are in the books of the prophets and we are getting condemnation and judgment. Woe to him, woe to him. Woe is a warning against the isolated worker, the person who is trying to pursue their career all by themselves, a person who has companion to work with, has someone to lift him up, when he falls. The verb in, in Hebrew, literally, it's a strong word. It's a causative stem. When somebody falls, somebody is there who causes him to stand back up, to get up and to keep going, even though you've been through a time of failure. Literally, we would translate this, if a person's work leads them to fall, he has another companion that will cause him to stand up. He will pick him back up. John Maxwell has a really famous quote. He says this, failure isn't fatal, but failure to learn from it might be. Failure isn't fatal, but failure to learn from it might be. Who's gonna help you learn from your failures in life? 
It's your companions. It's the people you work with that God has placed in your life to listen to, to seek counsel from, and to work together in a way that glorifies God. All of this, of course, is building up to verse 12, and that's probably the most famous verse that you've heard, most familiarity to it in in all of the context of um, Ecclesiastes chapter four. Though a man might prevail one against um, who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly snapped, is not quickly broken. One commentator says, if one is bad and two is good, how much better is three? How much more could you achieve from that? What do we do with this? How do we, how do we close with a, some of a theology application of work here? I want you to turn in your Bibles. You can um, no longer be in Ecclesiastes chapter four. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you wanted to even write 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the margins back in Ecclesiastes chapter four, that would be a, a really good thing to do. Those of you guys who are familiar with 1 Corinthians 10, you know the passage that I'm going to. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. The Apostle Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. People cannot attach significance or meaning to anything if it is not in some type of story, a larger context. If you get the story wrong, inevitably you will get a lot of other things in life wrong as well, including the way that you approach your jobs and your careers. If you see life as all about you, your own self-fulfillments, your own pleasures, rather than being caught up in a story about the love of God, the redemption of God and his purposes for his creation, all of it will be amiss. Everything will be out of line. You'll never approach your work and your career with a good biblical perspective. And it will always be frustrating. It'll be striving after the wind. It'll be vanity of vanities. And so we must adopt a biblical perspective of all of life that impacts the way that we look at our career and our jobs. One way of saying this is that we need a worldview biblical perspective that impacts how we look at our careers. And when we ask these questions, we're fundamentally identifying three basic things that we need to work through. Number one, what is the purpose of life? Why do you exist in the first place? Number two, what's gone wrong with the world? And number three, how is what has gone wrong with the world going to be made right? Those three questions are the basic framework of every worldview, whether you have a biblical one or a non-biblical one. Why am I here? What is the reason for my existence? What has gone wrong with the world, and how is what has gone wrong be made right? And everyone claims that this world is pretty much whacked out. I don't see anybody going around saying that everything is good, grand, and glorious in this world. I think everybody understands and presupposes, assumes, that this world is is really out of whack. But not everybody agrees with why it's that way. Therefore, the problems that people identify with the world are gonna be reflected in the solutions that they look to to solve those problems. 
Fundamentally, a Christian worldview starts with the premise that from Genesis 3 onward, everything east of Eden has been corrupted by sin and what happened with the very first man and woman in the Garden of Eden. The conclusion from a Christian worldview is that even though, yes, the world is fallen and we see injustices, we see suffering, we see sin, we see chaos and disorder everywhere, the Christian worldview also says there's something fundamentally wrong within us. Not only is there something wrong without, outside of us, but there is something fundamentally wrong within us. And this is why we experience things, uh, sinful consequences, poverty, injustices, difficulty in our workplaces. If you're a Marxist, our problems in the world are all related to greedy capitalists. And so the solution to those problems is gonna be found in a totalitarian state of mind and philosophy. If you're a, a lover of Freud and modern psychology, the problems in our life are all because of unmet desires and personal expectations and feelings of how we feel the world should be for our own gratification and self-fulfillment. And so therefore your solution is gonna be found in complete and utter freedom to the individual to act as they want to act without impacting anybody else negatively. Perhaps philosophies go back to the Greek world, to the early Greeks, and they saw that the fundamental problems of the world are all related to living an undisciplined life or, or a characterized life that is devoid of morality and concern for other people. Their solution is to tap into traditionally held beliefs that would bolster morality and to live in, with character and integrity and justice. One of the greatest philosophers of our time has said that the great danger is always to single out some aspect of God's good creation and identify it rather than the alien intrusion of sin as the villain. You will get off track in your worldview and in your theology of work if you look to something other than sin as the problem with this world. And if you take that stance, all of your solutions are gonna be worldly, secular perspective solutions. But if sin is ultimately the problem, something that resides deeply within the human heart, then we're part of the problem too. And the only solution, it has to be a sin solution to solve that problem. Most ultimate problems with the world are all sin problems, with make, which makes them relational problems. The first relational problem is sinful, unholy human beings relating to a holy, perfect God. And if there is no relationship intact there, disintegration and chaos are soon to overflow into every aspect of your life, including your work. The second relational problem is your is relationships with other people. And those will always be disintegrated and full of chaos if the first sin problem is not dealt with between our relationship with God. So the biblical story starts out this way. In Genesis 1, we see a God at work, and he creates something beautiful. And at the pinnacle of his creation, there's a relationship with man that is perfect. There's a deep fellowship in the garden 
and the relationship that God had between him and man, there was no infection of sin, there was no distance in between them whatsoever. They were connected relationally, and it was a healthy relationship. God created the world for them to live in, to work in, and he gave them a task. Work is not a bad thing. Work came in before sin came in, right? And so we do our work wholeheartedly to the glory of God because guess what? That's what he created us to do. When the intruder comes in, Satan convinces the man and the woman that God is holding back from them. They could actually be like God. They could have complete enjoyment in life if they would just neglect what the Lord has said to them, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and partake in it instead and enjoy this life that he convinces them they can have. It's the deepest lie that they could have ever believed. When they decided to eat of the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they threw all of the world into a, a corrupt fallenness. Now relationships are disintegrated. The relationship between them and God is, is distance. There's, there's a barrier there. That fellowship is no longer there that they once had. And because of it, our world is cursed. Our jobs are cursed. And if you have never had the feeling of a fruitless, meaningless career on a day in and day out basis, understand that most people have as they pursue their careers. It's because of sin. So God gives man an objective. He still gives them a task. He, they still have a job to do even after he, he sheds blood for the first sacrifice, covers them, they are, they are released east of Eden, never to come back into it again apart from a right relationship with him. And so they are on a journey. They are, they are given a work to do, to spread the, um, the glory of God to all the people that they come in with and to expand his kingdom. Well, how far did they get? All of a sudden, Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. One of the most greedy, self-fulfilling activities that man has ever seen. We're gonna do all of this in our own power. God disintegrates that, spreads it apart. God separates nations from other nations and people groups from other people groups. And there's a deep down desire that we can still come together and achieve something great apart from God. The story of human history is is each person trying to find their greatest fulfillment in something or someone other than God. And so we look for it through this job. We pursue it through that career. Each time, nothing fulfills it. Nothing fulfills it. We're hopeless, we're meaningless, and we're fruitless in our careers. Then he sends his son Jesus to do a perfect work that only he can do. And he dies on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins and his work is finished. We know that because he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we see him seated in glory throughout scripture in Hebrews and Psalms 110. He's our mediator and he is our intercessor. He has completed his work and he gives us a task to do now. And through Christ, now we can have fulfillment. Now our careers mean something. Now our jobs take on a different significance to expand the glory of God and to reach people with the truth of the gospel, to give not only their jobs meaning, but their entire life meaning, 
so that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 can be fulfilled. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, we do it all for the glory of God. And if you don't do that, the hopeless, depressing meaninglessness of Ecclesiastes chapter four is going to riddle through your heart and life until the day that you die, because from dust you were created and to dust you shall return. And that's about as good as it gets. What we need to do as Christians in understanding a biblical perspective of our jobs is to find them caught up in a greater story for God's redemption. And how can you now live your careers and do the things that you do with your family and your job on a daily basis for the glory of God, knowing how the story ends? One day, there won't be any more toil. There won't be any more thorns and thistles that infect everything we do. One day, the cycle of life will stop and it will all be grandly caught up in the perfect relationship and glory of God that he designed it to be from the beginning, only better. But until you find that relationship with Christ and that significance in the glory of God, everything, everything is only going to be meaningless and hopeless. The gospel is the one thing that brings us the greatest hope and significance to our jobs and to our careers. We need to tap into that and hold on to that and spread that as best we can, all right? Let's pray, and we'll be finished up. Father in heaven, um, you have written a story, not only of our lives, our careers, and the places that you will take us and the responsibilities that you will give us to do, but you have written a grander story through all of history and for your redemption we find ourselves caught up in that story. Lord, and so I pray that knowing the beginning, the middle, and the end, and the truth of the gospel, and how you are about a work of restoring all things for your purposes and for your glory, that that story in and of itself will shadow and infect and enlighten everything that we do in our careers. God, we ask you for the power to see the truth of the gospel and the story of your grand redemption to the point that it impacts everything we do in our jobs, in our careers. We ask you for meaning and significance, not because our identity is caught up in our jobs, but because our identity is caught up in you and what you have done for us through Jesus on the cross. Help us to see the idols that we have been worshiping in our life, whether that might be careers or it might be something else, and to bring those things to the foot of the cross and to find our ultimate joy, our ultimate satisfaction in you and in you alone. For then, and only then, will we have significance and meaning and identity that nothing can touch in this world, including job loss or any other such thing. Help us to find our deepest identity rooted and who you are, and what you are doing in this world. And give us opportunities through our careers to spread that message of the gospel to people who need it the most. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. Just a quick announcement. Uh, If you guys were listening to that video as we started, we are not going to do the Thanksgiving Pie Fellowship uh, next Sunday. And we're planning on doing, again, just a a service just like today, next Sunday, the 22nd. 
hopefully we've had uh, some staff kind of encounter a little bit of a uh, um, COVID and, and could be susceptible to that and some of our, our children's workers as well. We just want to be sensitive to that right now. Uh, we believe everybody's going to come back and bounce back healthy from that. Um, one last thing is, is just please don't allow uh, COVID and um, viruses to create a, a fear and to hinder your life from being lived with other people and doing the things that you do on a daily basis. We want to be sensitive and we want to do what we can at TBC to keep people healthy and safe, especially in terms of our family and gathering together. But this is not a reason to panic. This is not a reason to lose hope or any such thing. We want you to keep engaged in the body of Christ. Take the steps that you feel like you need to take as a family, but stay involved in this community and this group of people. We love you. It is not a reason to to panic whatsoever, and uh, we just want to be sensitive to those things, especially around the holiday times, okay? So we're hoping we can do this just for uh, one more Sunday, the way that we've done it this week, and then the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we'll be back to normal. Watch your emails. If you are not on our TBC weekly email and you'd like to get these updates, we usually send out an email once a week or at least once every other week. Please talk to me or call the church office and we will get you signed up, all right? And have a great and wonderful rest of your Sunday. Thanks for being here.